turn to, to John chapter 19. We have been going through John's gospel. We finished up chapter 18, um, and we've been looking at all the events that were leading up to this time, the crucifixion of Christ. And we finished chapter 18 last week looking at the uh, three daytime trials that Jesus went through. We, we know that he went through three trials at night, and then he went through three trials during the day uh, with Pilate and with Herod. Now, how many of you, uh, just with a show of hands, you grew up having the picture in your mind of what the, the crucifixion and the scourging of Jesus was like just through pictures, um, maybe some uh, movies early on or whatever. Uh, so you had this picture painted for you, and then, then came along the movie The Passion of the Christ, and so graphic. I don't know how many of you saw that when it came out in theaters, but it was just so graphic, and those images are hard to get out of your head what you saw there, because I think, at least for me, for the first time, I think it really depicted how bad the beatings were. And we can probably safely assume that it was even worse than that. But it was just so graphic to see that. And so as we look at uh, chapter 19 over the next couple weeks, uh, it's, there's nothing wrong with having those images in our mind. I know when I was putting together this study, some of the things that I would look at uh, on the internet showed a lot of the uh, first century, second century uh, paintings that people would have. And man, it was just like a, a crown of thorns and looked like just you or I sitting here this morning, just, you know, very comfortable and crown of thorns on our head with a forlorn look on their face, you know. So for that time, you know, that that's what they were doing. But uh, it certainly wasn't a representation at all of what uh, Jesus went through for us. So we're going to take a look at that over the next couple weeks, and we'll start with verse 1 in chapter 19. So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. Now we saw leading up to this that Pilate, he didn't really want to deal with this whole issue. He, he didn't believe that Jesus was guilty, for one thing. We see that time and again. Uh, but because of pressure to make a decision, he went with the request of the crowd. Uh, and we saw, as we ended chapter 18 last week, that uh, the crowd was uh, requesting Pilate to release Barabbas. It was the custom at that time at Passover that one uh, prisoner could be asked to be released. So Jesus was there. And behind the scenes, we know that the religious leaders were stirring this all up. And they said, release uh, Barabbas rather than, than Jesus. Um, now we know that Barabbas was a prisoner because he was guilty of murder and inciting a rebellion against Rome. We see that in the other Gospels. And, you know, what a contrast between these two guys, right? Of course, one is the Son of God, but his, his crimes are not founded. They're just, there's no basis for uh, these accusations against him. And yet you have this other guy that murdered someone and caused a rebellion. And uh, I'm sure even in, in, with Pilate, he was probably like, wow, of the two, if I had to pick, <laughs> I'd rather let Jesus go because this other guy, he's probably just going to cause problems for me again. 
But think about this, that could it be that before this whole scene took place, that the third cross was actually reserved for Barabbas? Did you ever think about that? Quite possible. Uh, the other two guys were what? We know from the scripture, thieves, weren't they? So someone that had committed murder and incited rebellion against Rome, uh, I would think he would be a, a top candidate for crucifixion as well because of his crimes. So it could be, as we see this release, release of a prisoner, that this cross was actually on the part of Rome and on the part of man in the world was reserved for Barabbas. But from God's standpoint, it was for Jesus all along, wasn't it? So we see this whole scene unfolding. It should, probably should have been Barabbas on that cross because of his sins. And we know, uh, as we have come to know the Lord, that it should have been us on the cross because of our sins as well, right? But it was ordained by God and the Son of God. Jesus willingly took our place on the cross, took upon the sins of the whole world upon himself, even for Barabbas. Not just for him, but, but for everyone, not just us. So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him, the text says. We have seen from the text that Pilate thought Jesus to be innocent, that he was just caught up in this elaborate conspiracy by the Jewish religious leaders. So in this verse, it could be that Pilate was planning to appeal to the compassion of the crowd. Basically, if we beat this man severely and then march him in front of the crowd again, maybe we'll have pity on him. Maybe they will recognize the scourging as just punishment and then feel, feel compelled to, to have him released. Also notice that during this whole trial before Pilate, that Pilate always questions Jesus privately. Yet he makes all of his decisions very publicly, doesn't he? Why do you suppose? To please the crowd, right? Nevertheless, he turns Jesus over to the soldiers to be scourged. In Isaiah chapter 52, verse 14, it says, So his visage was marred more than any man. He was beaten more severely than any man has ever been beaten, beyond recognition. And that is such a sobering thought to think about, that... He is facing crucifixion, but before he even gets there, he's just beat to where he wasn't even recognizable. This brutal act of scourging itself had three purposes, really. First, it was used to beat the prisoner as a form of punishment. We, we can see that. That makes sense. But second, it was used to extract a confession from the prisoner. Now, we know we see in... The headlines today many times uh, in, in police uh, forces and investigations and those kind of things that sometimes they coerce the, you know, the person to give a confession of a crime even if they're not guilty. So you could kind of see that in this process that would be true as well. Just beat them till they confess. Uh, really, you know, whether they did it or not, at least... Uh, you're, you're there taking that beating, and at some point in time, you just want it to stop, don't you? So they might confess to a crime that they didn't even commit. So they were trying to extract a confession from the prisoner. And then in third, in cases of crucifixion, it was used to weaken the victim so they would die more quickly on the cross. 
It makes sense, doesn't it? Now, this scourge was a leather whip knotted and weighted with pieces of metal or bone, commonly known as what is called a cat of nine tails. So the prisoner, prisoner was typically tied to a post or a tree or something where they'd have to wrap their arms around like this. They'd be tied, leaving their whole backside exposed. And you think about that. When, when we take that position, obviously the muscles expand and they're very close to the, the top of the skin, right? Even for some of us who have skin that's a little thicker than others, it still <laughs> it takes that on, right? And so uh, very much exposed. So anything that takes place back there could cause, you could easily bruise, obviously, and you could be lacerated very easily. So they tie them to this post, and they take this cat of nine tails to their back. So these sharp objects on the end of the whip, when they made contact, they would do the most damage possible. The force of the whip would bury these sharp objects into the flesh, ripping out the skin and muscle in chunks. Now, Jewish law permitted a maximum of 40 lashes. Just get that into your head, of 40 lashes. But Rome had no limit. So with the Roman soldiers carrying this out, we really don't know how many lashes he received. At least 40. So scourging in and of itself was an instrument of death. Few people even survived that. And here's something for you to think about. God kind of put this on my heart last week. I shared it with a few of the guys. We know that Jesus' death on the cross ultimately paid the penalty for our sin. But as we have given to us in the text, he was brutally beaten before going to the cross. Think about this as a point of application for each one of us. If we're thinking about toying with, giving in to the temptation of a certain sin, whatever that might be, if it's there in front of us, we've got that choice Am I going to turn to the Lord or am I going to turn to the sin? Am I going to give in to that temptation? Think of it in this way or view it in this way. Think about a chunk of Jesus' flesh being ripped out for that very sin. Very sobering thought, isn't it? When you think about that and you think about the suffering he went through, because I think so many times we have heard the story of the crucifixion so much from time we were growing up till now and we know that it was the worst kind of punishment ever but over time don't you find yourself without some type of reminder getting somewhat desensitized to that whole scene so much so that we forget or fail to realize that everything that he was going through was was for us so one lash with that whip jerking out skin and flesh to pay for our sin. Whatever that little sin is, a white lie. How many of you have told a little white lie? I wonder where it was through history that we decided we were going to color code our lies, you know? It just seems a little strange, doesn't it? But so many times we think of just, well, this is just a, this is just a small sin, you know? 
There is no small sin in the eyes of God. It's, it's all sin. So think about that. Just keep that on, on your heart and your mind. Remembering, keeping it in balance with Jesus did go willingly to the cross. He took the beating willingly for us. So don't want to minimize the intensity of this whole thing by any way, in any way, but I do want us to remember that he did it willingly for us because he loved us that much. Isaiah 53, 5 says, He was wounded for our transgression and he was bruised for our iniquities. You see, it wasn't with his cat and nine tails. It just wasn't always the bone chips or the metal. There were also sometimes metal balls on there as well. So not only was it ripping skin, but can you imagine those things hitting you and just the bruising that would take place? Verse 2 says, And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 through 19, God said to Adam, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. It's interesting that it was sin that brought thorns and thistles into the world. So maybe it was only fitting that the Creator would wear a crown of thorns as He bore the sins of the world. Now, we don't know for sure what kind of, or type of thorns were used, only that they would have been readily available for use because we know that the soldiers formed this crown of thorns right there on the spot. It's believed to be thorns from the jujube tree. I don't know if that's the exact pronunciation, but it's close. I got the J's right, anyway. <laughs> and these thorns, those trees are still native to uh, Israel to this day. These thorns would be uh, an average length of about an inch. And you think about that. We've seen all kinds of pictures. Sometimes it's a twisted vine that kind of looks like something off of a rose bush. And then we've seen a, a, a crown of thorns with the long uh, thorns as well. It doesn't really matter a whole lot. They're, they're sharp and they're going to bury themselves into your skin. We know that if we're just pricked a little bit by one of those, how it hurts. And that's to, you know, our fingers, our hands, maybe an arm, leg. But to have that on your head, whole other thing altogether, isn't it? Regardless of the type or the length of the thorns used, we know that they were twisted together and placed on his head, forced down upon his head. They wanted it to stay on, didn't they? The beatings were still going to continue. They wanted to put this crown of thorns on him, so it's certainly... Uh, wise on our part to, to know and, and to think that it was jammed down on his head, much like we would put on a hat and we want it to stay on. Same principle. There was some force put behind that. Matthew's account says that after the scourging, the soldiers placed a scarlet robe upon him and a crown of thorns and placed a reed in his right hand. So you have that picture of a robe, a crown, and a reed representing a scepter, mocking his claim to be a king. 
Matthew's account also says that they spit on him, took the reed, and struck him on the head. Now picture that, a crown of thorns already on your head, then someone hits you in the head with a stick, which would drive the thorns on even more. And they spit on him. And you think about that. That's like the, the lowest form of disgrace there is. Uh, I remember some years ago, maybe some of you remember, when Bill Romanowski played for the Broncos, and there was a game in which they caught him on screen. Some incident took place, and he turned around and he spit in the guy's face. He got a hefty fine for that, but it's like that is just the lowest of low, isn't it? I mean, it's one thing just to turn your head and go, yeah, you know, spit on the ground if somebody said something that you don't agree with. It's another thing altogether to spit in your face. And the indication that we have in the text is it happened again and again. Verse 3 says, Then they said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. So picture that. Jesus beaten, bruised, swollen beyond recognition, covered in blood and spit. They bring him back to Pilate. Verse 4. Pilate then went out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no fault in him. Now we have for us in the text uh, documented, if you will, some of the conversation that took place between Pilate and Jesus, but certainly not all of it. We don't know what all took place with that. Will we ever know? Well, I, I suppose we will when we get to heaven, but um, I, I have to feel that Pilate was probably drilling down as much as he possibly could. He didn't want this to take place. He really didn't. But he was torn between what? Doing what he knew was what was right and giving in to the crowd, right? Peer pressure. How many of us have experienced that before? I know what I should do, but peer pressure is telling me, oh, how am I going to be thought of if I don't go along with this? What will people think about me if I go along with this or don't go along with this? There's an old saying that if you weren't so concerned about what other people think about you, you'd realize how little they did. <laughs> we get really hung up on that, don't we? Man, how's people going to think about this? And most of the time, they're not thinking about it at all. You're the one that's focused on it, right? So Pilate, he's throwing all these questions out to Jesus, trying to drill down, trying, trying to get some type of response from Jesus such that he could go back to these religious leaders and say, this isn't happening. But we do see here that he says, I want you to know that I find no fault in him. And at that point, Jesus comes out wearing this crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Behold the man. Profound words at a, at a profound time. But understand Pilate's tone in saying this. It carries the idea of, look at this man. Look at this poor man. Hasn't he suffered enough? Take pity on him and let me release him. But also because we know that so many of Prisoners that went through this scourging actually died. 
the behold the man could also be saying, behold the man. Look what he's been through, and he's still upright. He's still walking. We know why, don't we? His face was set like flint on the cross. He would be going to the cross. It was God-ordained. So no matter what took place before that, he was still going to be able to accomplish that purpose. Behold the man. It's a noble effort on the part of Pilate to try to get him released, but it failed. It's an important lesson for us to remember. It takes more than human sentiment to bring a lost sinner to salvation, doesn't it? How many of us have family members and friends that we've been praying for for years? We want them, we desire for them to come to the Lord. And it's a sentiment that goes such that we do not desire to see them to spend eternity in hell, right? We want them to be in heaven with us. But there's a work that takes place in order for that to happen that goes beyond just our human sentiment for that. So just feeling sorrow, sorrow for Jesus in his suffering is, is not enough. You see the picture there? As I stand here this morning, as we look at this text, as I uh, elaborate somewhat on the suffering that Jesus went through, a non-believer could feel sorry for the man, couldn't he? He could feel as if, wow, nobody should have to go through that. But if it doesn't stir up a life-changing event in, in them, then it's just human sentiment, isn't it? One can recognize Jesus as a suffering servant, but they must understand the reason why he did it. They must understand his suffering was for them, for their sin, because he loved them. So it's not just an observation of what he did, but the realization of why he did it. If you're a note taker, you might want to write that down. Important point. It's not just the observation of what he did, it's the realization of why he did it. So we're not saved, obviously, by feeling pity for Jesus and all that he went through. We are saved by repenting of our sins and trusting in Jesus, this sinless substitute, who suffered for us. If you see the suffering that he went through and recognize that suffering was for you and not just a picture of a man that was badly beaten and crucified, again, it should change something in our hearts, stir something up in us. Behold the man. Pilate was trying to play on the emotions of the crowd. Show pity on him and let him go. Look at what he's been through. Look at him. Isn't that enough? He was beaten beyond recognition. If that was the case, you have to think that maybe some of the religious leaders that were standing there would have to think, wow, is that actually him? I mean, don't even recognize him. But with the influence of these religious leaders, the crowd had already made up its mind. We know that from the text and throughout all the Gospels, that they were stirring this up, weren't they? Where was the crowd that greeted him when he came in riding on the foal of a donkey? Where were they? I believe the religious leaders of the time made sure they were nowhere close. <laughs> they wanted all of their 
minions to be present so they could influence them, talk to them, and get them to say what needed to be said at the right time. Verse 6, Therefore, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, You take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. Now, when Pilate would have made that statement, he would have known that it really carried no weight, because by Roman law, they couldn't, could they? But he was basically saying, I don't find any fault in him. You want to crucify him? Go ahead. And they knew they couldn't. So maybe it was another ploy on the part of Pilate to try to diffuse the whole issue. Pilate was a weak-willed man who, like many in leadership positions, hoped to find a compromise that could please everybody. Modern-day example, I can just say one phrase geographically, and you'll all get it. Washington, D.C. <laughs> now, I didn't point out any particular person, did I? I didn't have to. <laughs> I pointed out a geographic area, and you guys all knew what I meant. Leadership people who find compromise that can please everybody. Unfortunately, gang, this is going on in a lot of churches today, isn't it? Giving in to the majority of the crowd of the fellowship that says this issue or that issue is okay. And it's not. So they compromise. That's what Pilate's doing. The Jews answered him, we have a law. And according to our law, he ought to because he made him. Now, it's interesting here because these religious leaders, they didn't believe Jesus was the Son of God, but they used his claim to be the Son of God against him, didn't they? So today, if you run across certain cults that say Jesus never claimed deity, take them to this passage. Because the religious leaders understood very clearly that he was claiming to be deity, didn't he? We talked about that last week. That's one accusation they made that was true. He claimed to be the son of God. And that's why they're having him killed. Therefore, verse 8, when Pilate heard that saying, he was the more afraid and went again into the praetorium and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Now we know that during that time and even after that, the Romans and the Greeks had numerous myths concerning gods coming to the earth as men. Right? We've even seen that even recently with Thor. Putting the hammer down, right? So they had all of these myths about the gods plural, not capital, and them coming to earth as men. So Pilate, maybe he heard the phrase, son of God, and it caused him to have more fear and anxiety about sentencing Jesus to death because, man, that goes against their whole myth, mythology and all of that, doesn't it? This could not be a good thing. If he's one of the gods and I put him to death, there could be a hefty price to pay. He says, where are you from? Basically, are you one of the gods? Was he indeed a god come to earth? Pilate's saying, 
give me something here. Give me something to go on. And at this time, Jesus gives no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have the power to crucify you and power to release you? Referencing Isaiah again, chapter 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So Jesus gives him no answer to the question, where are you from? So Pilate then pulls out his Roman authority card. Tell me what I want to hear and I can let you go. It's basically what he's saying. I'm in charge. I'm the judge. I have the power. I have the authority. Pilate's making it very clear to Jesus, life or death for you, I hold in my hand. Do you not realize that? Why are you not speaking to me? Why are you not answering me when I have the power to appoint you unto death or appoint you unto life. Pilate thought he had that authority, didn't he? Jesus answered then, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. Now that's another phrase for us to think about, another verse for us to think about in regards to that geographical area again, right? That we talked about earlier. You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above, because we know uh, later Paul talks about that as well. He asks us, exhorts us to pray for our leaders, doesn't he? I don't know about you guys, but sometimes that's a sobering thought. I don't even like them. Why would I want to pray for them? I don't agree with them about anything, <laughs> so why would I pray for them? Well, there is a chance they could be unbelievers, right? Just an outside chance. Okay, I'm just throwing that out there. There's an outside chance that some of them might not be believers. And we should be, pray, be praying for unbelievers, shouldn't we? But our, the exhortation is we should be praying for our leaders. Have we, as Christians, have we, as a Christian country, prayed for our leaders the way that we should? The answer is no. We know that. We know that that's not the case. Would it make a difference? I think it would, yes. I think it does, because we do pray for our leaders, some. But this indicates that we should be praying for all of them, right? And not just, it's not just Washington. It's the city of Greeley, the city of Fort Collins, the city of Johnstown, the city of Berthoud, the list goes on and on. Anyone that's in a position of authority, we should be interceding for them in prayer, shouldn't we? I don't know about you guys, but that's really convicting to me. There's just a whole lot of other people I'd rather pray for. <laughs> I have to be honest. <laughs> Especially the ones that I think are going to change, <laughs> you know. But is what we're supposed to be doing. But Jesus says to Pilate, you would have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. 
kind of an indicator to us, again, who's in control here, right? We talked about that a few weeks ago. Who's in control? It's God. It's God-ordained. Everything that's happening was by God's design, and Jesus is submitted to the will of the Father, so everything that's taking place is by God's design. So in this verse, John records the last words spoken by Jesus to Pilate. Jesus is telling Pilate that his so-called authority was only delegated to him from God. One day God would call him to account for his actions. That's true of all of us. Jesus was able to surrender himself to the Jews and to Rome because why? He was first surrendered to God, wasn't he? Can you imagine not being submitted to the will of God and still going through all this? At some point in time, you're going to throw in the towel, aren't you? At some point in time, we're going to quit. Enough is enough. I admit I did these things. Admit I was wrong, whatever, just so that the pain would stop. But Jesus was totally surrendered to, submitted to the will of the Father, and this was going to happen. He was first surrendered to God. The other part of that verse says that, therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Now, it's not God, <laughs> because God doesn't sin. You might make a note of that if you didn't already know that. <laughs> this is a reference to the high priestly office. At first you would say, oh, Caiaphas. But we know that there was power behind that high priestly office as well, which was Annas, his father-in-law. So this is a reference to Annas and Caiaphas, that religious leaders, that institution, if you will, that organization as it was, were the ones that delivered him, right? Remember, it was Caiaphas who prophesied in John chapter 11 when we were there, verses 49 through 50, one of them, Caiaphas, being a high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. It's kind of a double-sided prophecy when you look at it because it's true, that's exactly what's going to take place, but it's also what needed to take place for us to be reconciled to the Father, right? Annas and his son-in-law Caiaphas. They knew the scriptures. They had been given every opportunity to examine the evidence. They had willfully closed their eyes and hardened their hearts. They saw to it that Jesus wouldn't get a fair trial. They incited the crowd to cry out, crucify him. Pilate himself was spiritually blind. But these two leaders, Annas and Caiaphas, had knowledge of the scriptures. Therefore, their sin was greater. Knowing what you ought to do and not do it versus someone who just doesn't know, right? Verse 12, from then on, Pilate sought to release him. That's an interesting 
verse as well, or a section of a verse, because it appears Pilate's still working. He is trying to get him relieved. In the big picture of history, we look at Pilate and we just think, what a worm, don't we? I mean, we just, we don't have, we don't hold Pilate any high regard. But he was trying to get him released. He did not believe he, he was guilty. Several things, I think, going on there. One is he just didn't think he was guilty. Two, his wife has told him, don't have anything to do with this guy. I'm very troubled in the dreams that I've been having about this whole situation. And then also, any dig, anything that he could do to get back at those Jewish religious leaders, he was going to do, wasn't he? Man, if this is just a, they think that they got this all under control. I'm going to show them who's under control. I've got authority of Rome behind me. This is not going to come down any other way than what the way I want it to, except that he was scared of the crowd. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out saying, If you let this man go, then you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. Oh, that's quite the ploy. You wonder how, how long it took the guys to come up with that one. You know, it's like, huddle, you know. They all come together. Well, if we uh, do this, you know, we want to do this. No, no, we can't do that. But if we say this, and then the guys go, hey, I got an idea. What if we do the whole king thing? If we take that approach to this whole situation? Makes sense, doesn't it? Hey, Pilate, representative of Rome, you and all your Roman authority, if you let this go, you're not Caesar's friend. By the way, we will spread that rumor. We'll make sure everybody knows that what you did or what you're going to do proves that you're not a friend of Caesar. They say whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. So Jesus claimed to be a king right here. In that time, Caesar was skeptical of everyone, wasn't he? He would kill anyone to keep them from usurping his authority, trying to take over the throne. Even just a rumor of that would have you killed. They're basically saying, okay, if the son of God thing doesn't work, then he claimed to be a king. You better do something about that, otherwise Rome's going to hear about it. It's interesting that these religious leaders and how much they hated Rome now are using Rome to their advantage, aren't they? Well, Pilate continues to try and release Jesus. How he tried and how many times, we don't know. But now the crowd turns on Pilate, starts to accuse Pilate of being a traitor to Caesar. Prompted, I'm sure, by the minions of Annas and Caiaphas, right? Whole thing's a setup. So this becomes too much for Pilate, and so to protect himself, he moves forward to giving his official verdict, and he will deliver Jesus to be crucified. Verse 13. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. So he moves out and sets down in the judgment seat. Now up until this point in time, we don't have any indication from the text that he has done that up to this point. So there's something unique about him coming out and sitting in the judgment seat, basically it's saying what? 
I've reached a verdict. Matthew tells us that it's at this time that Pilate washes his hands of this man's blood. Basically, graphically picturing this man's blood is on your hands now, not on mine. Pilate sits down in the judgment seat to make this decision. Some of these things that we have said or we referred to over the years, how many of you used that phrase before? Well, I'm just going to wash my hands of that whole thing. <laughs> kind of makes you think twice about wanting to use that phrase again now, doesn't it? Knowing what that's probably where it originated, I don't know. That's certainly a famous case of it right there. I'm just going to wash my hands of the whole thing. There's been times in ministry <laughs> things have come up. And I wanted to do this. <laughs> Done. Over. <laughs> but I can't. None of us can, really. So we need to face those things and handle those types of things in the way that God would want us to, right? Pilate didn't. He's taken the chicken way out here, isn't he? Sits down in the judgment seat with his hands washed, ready to make a decision. The irony of this whole thing is, is that Pilate himself is actually being judged on the basis of his response to Jesus. So are the religious leaders. So isn't everyone in the crowd crying out, crucify him. We see it even in church today, that so many times people will set back in their seat of judgment and analyze and scrutinize Jesus. And in reality, just like Pilate, they're, they're not judging Jesus because of their reaction to Jesus. They are judging themselves by their actions. So the judgment seat they are sitting in is that of their own judgment. Pilate's in the same place, isn't he? How they respond will determine, it will have eternal consequences, right? Whether they will spend eternity in heaven or in hell. Verse 14, now it was the preparation day of the Passover and about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, behold your king. So we've, we've seen behold the man. Now he says, behold your king. The preparation day refers to the preparation day before the Sabbath. But this, being the Passover Sabbath, it was considered an especially holy day. Because it was the preparation day before the Sabbath, they had things to do. They had things they wanted to get done. Let's get rid of this problem so we can move on to what needs to be done. Let's kill the fulfillment of the law, Jesus so we can get on with fulfilling the law of God. <laughs> Makes no sense at all, does it? I think Pilate was trying to get in one last dig here by proclaiming to them, Behold your king. Verse 15, But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? One more time, doesn't he? He throws it out there one more time, and the chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. Isn't it interesting that in 1 Samuel 8, 
the Jews reject God by begging Samuel for a king to rule over them. You remember that scene? And on this day, they reject Jesus, God's son, and cry out, we have no king but Caesar. In any other situation, in any other circumstance, they would never say that. They didn't recognize Caesar as their king, but they're using it to their advantage today, aren't they, in this scene. The crowd cries out, crucify him. Pilate asks one last time, shall I crucify your king? And they say, crucify him. Two words that determined what would be done. They had to be spoken. In God's plan, his son had to be crucified. In God's plan, someone would have to say it. But the fact that this was God's plan did not absolve the participants of their responsibility, did it? They were doing it. It was wrong, but it was all according to God's plan. But Peter puts both of these ideas together at a speech on Pentecost to the Jews. Acts 2.23 says him, Jesus, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. It's both things in that one verse, isn't it? God ordained plan that this was going to take place and how the Jews carried it out. Several years ago, uh, when Chris and I were living in Colorado Springs, I would uh, once a week go to a men's Bible study at uh, Rocky Mountain Calvary Chapel down there. And this particular day, we were, it was coming up close to Easter. And one of the guys came in and, and just said, hey, I got something I'd like to share today. And the class was open that way. Obviously, we wanted, if somebody had something on their heart, we wanted them to have the opportunity to share it and so that we could be encouraged, we could pray for them, whatever the case might be. And this particular day, he said, a couple nights ago, I had a very disturbing dream. And he said, in this dream, I was at this scene. I was there with the crowd all around. I saw Jesus up a little higher by the judgment seat. It was very clear that he had been beaten almost to death. And he said, I was fully aware of what was going on. In this dream, I am standing here knowing Jesus is going to be crucified. And he said, and Pilate in this dream said, what shall I do with your king? said a word. Not a word was spoken. The crowds were silent. Pilate said again, what should I do with your king? And he said, and in my dream, I came to the realization, I have no hope unless he's crucified. He said, so I started to change. Can you imagine? And as he shared that story, he wept. I understand. Why. I wept just him telling the story. Because you think about, he had to be crucified, and if nobody else was going to shout that out, I have to, because I have no hope of eternal life with the Lord unless that takes place. <laughs> just like that crowd, that whole room of men was just silent. There were sobs, there were... And the leader of the group said, you know what? We're going to close right there with prayer. We, we hadn't even been together but about 10 minutes. 
but I think he saw what, there is nothing else that's going to be said that's any more profound than what he just shared. And he said, let's pray. <laughs> Man, I will never forget that. What a disturbing dream to have. But how true it is, right? We know that to be 100% true, unless crucify him, those two words rang out that day. We're all in trouble, aren't we? <laughs> it was our sins individually, each one of us, that required Jesus to be crucified. Each one of us here this morning that know the Lord could say, I sent him to the cross, couldn't we? And it would be correct. It was the sins of the whole world, but it was certainly our sins as well. I sent him to the cross. Pilate and Rome had no more and no less blame than us in this whole situation. The religious leaders had no more and no less blame than us. The crowd itself had no more and no less blame than us. We're all responsible, right? Romans 6.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us. Whether, whether you look it up in the Greek or Hebrew or whatever, all means all. Everyone. And we, as we gather here this morning, we are the all in that verse. And we're also the us in Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We are the all and we are the us. Most of us know that. I'm, I'm not telling you anything you don't already know. I'm just reminding us as we continue to move through chapter 19, chapter 20, we need to realize it's so easy to go, ah, that Pilate, he's a lot of knucklehead, you know. Or those Jewish religious leaders, their sin was no greater than our sin, was it? So even though we were and are sinners, God loved us so much that he sent his son to die for us. Take those two phrases of Pilate, and we'll add one to the end ourselves this morning. Behold the man, behold the king who died for us. Amen?